of its flea by P.J. Edgel. Episode 1 Viola The pain was so deep she didn't know where it ended. It was an abyss. If she looked inside, she never saw its root. Just the blackness. It never abated much either. Just a constant stream of pulsing anguish. When she'd met him, it seemed to dissipate for a while. But after a year or so of marriage, it came back. Any reprieve had been an illusion. Kimberly had been right. So Viola lived with it, basically ignoring it until it would overtake her as if to say, You can't forget me. I live here too. She recognized the pain in his boy, Julian, and that's why she'd stayed. Their connection was instant. Just like that, she was his mother. But with motherhood came years of verbal assaults and mental abuse. Then it turned physical. He seemed to be punishing her for who she had been, for her independent spirit, for what he'd fallen in love with. At first she fought back, but then she got tired. The abyss of pain fed off those beatings. It got deeper and deeper. Then, when she picked up on Julian's specialness, as folks here called it, she knew it was time to leave. He was 16 when she knew, but it took two more years to secretly save money, to get it out of him, and to plan their escape to the millisecond. Now, here it was upon her. Julian had never discussed anything about his specialness with her until a few months ago. At one point, Viola was afraid he wouldn't acknowledge it to even himself, because in this part of Mississippi, death was a more attractive option than being black and gay. But one day, there he was, her brave boy telling her. Julian said he knew she knew, and he knew she didn't care, but he wanted to tell her, to say the words. Then she told him about the plan to escape, to leave, to go back to New York. She said, Julian, we can build a life there. You can be you, and I can be me, and we can get out of Shittisippi, away from screaming and shouting at him. Away from him. He finished her sentence. Julian had been hesitant and said he needed time to think. She panicked and asked why, trying not to let desperation creep into her voice. She was relying on him. But then Julian revealed he was in love and didn't think he could leave. Maybe the boy could come with them, she suggested. But Julian had returned hours later with red-rimmed eyes and a look that finished the discussion. It was decided. The two of them were leaving for New York. So here it was two months later. Julian had graduated. She was in the appointed meeting place, finding it hard to breathe. Julian was late. She glanced at the clock, 11.58. She was afraid to even pray as she wondered, where was he? Julian. When Redfield had threatened to beat him up, the curtain of pain came down so quickly its descent knocked him out. For three months, 
The pain that had started when he was young had lifted. He thought it had gone. For three months, Julian had been whole, loving and being loved. Redfield had been his lover, his first real love. But somehow it had all gone awry. The pact to tell their parents and come out together before graduation was obviously not happening. Julian had told his stepmother, Viola, and felt so happy and free after that, he ran to share it all with Redfield. Except Redfield was not alone. He was with people, other football players, and not with him. Julian, not happy, not free. Certainly not his ready teddy. Suddenly, he was the jock, Redfield Plummer, who didn't play around with no fucking faggots. Julian had backed away from Redfield in shock and horror at the rejection and sting of his words. He wanted to scream at him, coward. And the only thing that saved him from throwing himself in the Mississippi River was Viola's plan. He couldn't say he felt hopeful, but a degree of the pain lessened. Thinking of escape, graduation was two months away, and they would leave right after that. Julian had known he was special. The feeling had stopped for three glorious months with Redfield Plummer, but then it all came crashing back. Redfield couldn't handle being gay and started dating Julian's best friend. Riley Marie, oh, what a tangled web we weave. Julian remembered Miss Banny, his English teacher, reading Sir Walter Scott's epic poem of love and betrayal. The irony was not lost on Julian, as he, Revfield, and Riley Marie sat in the front row of the class, their own drama unfolding. At some point, Revfield had tried to explain he hoped to get a football scholarship. And even if there was a gay player in the NFL, he didn't want that to be his whole identity. It was hard enough being black in Mississippi without being gay on top of it, Redfield said. He pleaded for Julian's understanding. Julian remembered snorting and finally calling him a coward to his face. Riley Marie, his former best friend, now he knew she had only held the title because she liked the drama of keeping his big gay secret. But keeping Julian's secret paled in comparison to dating Redfield Plummer, the hottest football player in school. Plus, keeping his secret and being his savior. Julian doubted that Sir Walter Scott was thinking about living on the DL when he wrote his poem. It had all unraveled so quickly. Julian and Redfield... Julian and Riley Marie, before he knew what had happened, he was without lover or friend. One day, Julian sat and figured out how long it all took. Four hours. Within four hours, he had lost everything and was left with his stepmother and a plan to escape his abusive, yelling, gay, hating father, and moved to New York. Over the two months between the unraveling and the escape, Julian formed a plan to tell his father before he left Mississippi. Julian wanted to leave free of baggage. If the unraveling had taught him anything, it was that he didn't have tolerance 
for cowards. Redfield and Riley Marie were cowards. He didn't want to be in their company. So he'd tell his father and then walk out the door. That had been his plan. But now, as the moment grew closer, with Viola waiting at the appointed meeting place and Julian in his room preparing to tell him, he questioned the decision. Maybe truth was overrated. No, he knew that when he arrived in New York, he wanted to be a free man. He'd tell him, and if he died in the process, so be it. Julian put on extra clothes to protect himself from the beating he knew he couldn't escape and put his hand on his bedroom doorknob for the last time. Friday. Viola. Viola glanced at the clock again, 12.02 a.m., and then glanced in the rearview mirror. It was the movement that caught her eye at first, the unsteadiness of it making the darkness dance. Her heart raced as she threw the car into reverse to meet the limping, weaving figure. She heard the crack of a shotgun and drove backwards even faster. Throwing herself over to open the passenger door, she screamed, Get in! Julian clumsily tried to climb in. She pawed at him, dragging him inside, as she threw the car into gear and gunned it. Julian just caught the door and slammed it as the car lurched, then sped forward. She hunched in her seat and pulled him down into a horizontal position as she heard another shot. What the? I told him. You what? Viola screamed, hunching lower into the steering wheel. I wanted to leave that way. I wanted to... Get us killed, Julian? I've been planning this for two years. It could have been ruined. He could have killed you. I could have lost you. But he didn't. I survived. A bullet pinged the bumper. Ma, it's okay. He's on foot. Julian gasped. Thank God. Viola floored it. And in spite of the bullets and the near disaster, she smiled to herself. Her husband was a lousy shot. Julian. The rhythm of the road lulled Julian as they drove north. The dark night and Tylenol 3 made everything seem like a movie, as if he were an observer of someone else's dramatic story. When he could open his swollen eye, the lights on the dashboard reinforced the feeling of being in a movie theater. His head was by Viola's leg, and his eyes were fixed on the dials and lights of the dashboard. They seemed to dance. Every part of him ached except his heart, which felt unburdened for the first time. Julian felt free and wondered if this was because he was about to die. It had gone as a part of him expected, but not as planned. Julian had planned to move faster, to be more nimble, and to not get beat quite as badly but his father had moves that he didn't expect. And the truth was, Julian wasn't much of a fighter. He was a strategic thinker. And thank God for the last-minute decision of extra clothing. Though the clothes had made it unbearably hot, the extra padding was the only thing that had saved his ribs. In the dark, he replayed the scene with his father. 
Julian had come into the living room where his father was already one beer into the 11 o'clock news. Viola had just dumped her car in a seedy part of Oxford, hoping it would be stripped beyond recognition. Her wig in a trash can nearby. His father would suppose she was at work and assume Julian was out with friends. But Julian was there, feeling exhilarated and overheated. He could almost feel the sweat running down his chest and back now. Julian had cleared his throat to get his father's attention. And when that had failed, he stood in front of the TV. I need to tell you something, he'd said, trying to sound strong. His father had thrown a beer can at him. It missed and exploded as it hit the wall. Clean up that mess and move. I'm missing the weather. Julian stood his ground, sweaty. I need to tell you something now. I'm gay. Though there was no outward indication, Julian sensed more than saw that his father had heard him. He could hear his mother telling him that truth was overrated. And for an instant, he agreed, regretting his decision. But within that same instant, Julian decided that telling the truth was something he wanted, even if it meant dying for it. It felt pure. And though he didn't know if he believed in God or heaven, he believed in truth. Emboldened by his resolve, he started to say again, Did you hear me? I said I'm gay. But he didn't have time to finish the sentence. His father had leapt up and been on him, gripping his face tightly in one hand while his other threatened the blow that Julian had been expecting. His father had hissed in his face, wetting it with his words. If I was you, I wouldn't repeat what you just said. I ain't never heard those words said twice. Julian lowered his eyes. His father, taking that as assent, relaxed his grip and let go, turning to return to his chair. Now clean up that goddamn mess. Julian had moved slowly toward the foaming can on the floor. Why couldn't he stand up to him? Why was he doing this? Cleaning up his mess so that you can live? Part of him answered, clean up the mess. Walk out the door, and you never have to see him again. It's that simple. You told him, you're done. But he didn't feel like he had imagined. He didn't feel liberated. He felt let down. He knelt and picked up the can. No son of mine's gonna be a fucking faggot, though you sure clean like a girl. Clean better than that no-good Viola. Where the hell is she? He took a swig of beer. You done there, faggot? Now he was tongue. By now, his father had opened another beer and was muttering at the TV. Julian stood up with the beer can, a rag in his hand, and decided to feel better about his declaration, at least by saying it again before running. He cleared his throat, 
But the words never made it out as his father leapt up, throwing him down on the floor. His knee was on Julian's ribs and his twisted face so close Julian felt the spray of beer. No son of mine is a fucking faggot, you hear me? We're strong black men. We ain't no fucking faggots. You had an uncle who tried to say the same thing. My daddy beat his ass into the grave and I'll beat yours. Where's that goddamn whore of a mother of yours? This is her fault. You weren't no fucking faggot before I married her sorry ass. Satisfied, his father had released a little pressure and Julian had thrown him off. Surprised by his own strength, Julian elbowed his father in the stomach, hard. He had no idea where the instinct came from, but with that, the fight was on. Julian had felt strangely alive, petrified, but alive. But that small victory had been short-lived, and Julian had to think in a different direction. As the beating intensified, Julian's strategy became to fake pain, to cry louder, to make his father think he really had him beat. When his father was winded and thought him unconscious on the ground and, as Julian found out later, had gone for the shotgun, Julian made a run for it. He ran as best he could, limping and cursing, until he saw brake lights. He was grateful as he remembered how his stepmother had reversed the car to meet him. Every step had felt like pure torture. Every breath he swore was his last until he'd thrown himself in the car. Viola had pulled his head down and it was only when his cheek fell against the vinyl that he knew he was safe. Once they were sure of their distance, Viola had fished a Tylenol-3 from her bag and put it in his mouth. He rose up on one elbow and took a swig of water. It ran down his chin and wet his clothing, but he didn't care. It felt cool and soothing. Spent from the effort, he fell back to his former position. With his head against Viola's thigh, he felt safe, secure in the womb of the car. Exhaustion overtook Julian, and the movie faded from his mind. He screwed his eyes shut and clutched his ribs to ease the pain. Viola caressed his cheek and kept repeating, We did it. We made it. It'll be all right now. As he drifted into unconsciousness, Julian hoped he'd see the Manhattan skyline before he died. Henry. Damn it. He heard the bullet clink off the bumper. The lights disappeared. Damn. Julian was gone. Henry stood rooted to the spot. He wondered who had been driving. All he saw was a silhouette of a baseball cap. By the time he arrived back at his own back door, two hours had passed. He went straight to the cupboard where he kept the bourbon and then sat at the kitchen table. 
By his fourth drink, they were whispering. Or it was only one voice, really. But he knew the other was there. Silent, but still blaming. By his sixth drink, when the bourbon stung less, the figures were fully formed. Taking the empty chairs at the table, his father's voice loud and yelling, his mother's eyes condemning and accusatory. She'd look at him, her neck always slightly askew, and he'd hear her words in his head. You're no better than him, and you promised me you wouldn't. You promised me. Then he'd drink even more to stop the pain in his heart from taking hold and squeezing. Once accused of being a mama's boy by his father, he'd become the opposite, following the man, emulating his every move, and with that shift, he'd watch the fear grow in his mother's eyes. Only once she'd spoken of her disappointment. She was quiet in her delivery. Every time I look at you, I'm sad. I know he's going to kill me one day. And you know it too. You may even help him. Because you got it in your head there's power in the fist. And he must have something. The only thing he's got is the devil. The devil's real good at making it all look good. But let me tell you right now, Henry. Power may look good. It may even feel good for a spell. But it ain't good. Because it ain't real. It ain't happiness. It ain't joy. You're going to end up worse than him if you keep this up. You won't mind me now, but... She had stopped abruptly at the sound of his father's footsteps. A self-fulfilling prophecy. She was dead within a month. His father had come home in a rage. And he knew how the rest had unfolded. The same as always, but one step too far. Henry found her at the bottom of the stairs, her neck broken, her eyes open. He caught her last breath, and her eyes stayed fixed on him. Those were the eyes he saw now, as his father's voice berated him. The bourbon was almost gone. He couldn't take it anymore. Shut up! Taking a swing at the ghost, but landing on the floor. His father's laugh crackled in his ear. You a lousy shot. You can't fight worth shit. And you raised a faggot son with a whore. You a disgrace. Henry tried to get up, but the room spun and his mother's ghost walked away and disappeared through the stove. He looked at the clock. The numbers swirled and danced. Three. Something. Shouldn't Viola be home by now? She probably told the boy to leave. He'd give her health, turning his son into a faggot, and then telling him to leave. He hadn't recognized the driver. Some faggot friend, he muttered. Henry stumbled up the stairs and fell short of the bed. Viola. They had driven for about eight hours until they hit morning traffic outside of Knoxville and decided to stop at a motel to rest for the day. Julian needed to sleep and stretch out to heal his body. They'd get on the road again in the night. The driving had given Viola time to think. It seemed ridiculous that she'd spent years focusing on escape and dreaming about how their lives would be once they settled in New York. 
but she hadn't planned their first 24 hours. Looking back, she knew it was her fear that it would never happen that made her concentrate on parts of what seemed like an impossible fantasy. The part she had thought about, the road trip north, she had imagined as a fun road trip with her son, but instead beside her lay a broken boy in a sound drug-induced sleep. One hundred miles into the trip, she'd found a drugstore and bought supplies to clean up his wounds. He'd been beaten pretty badly by his father, but Julian had anticipated the beating and had worn extra clothes to soften the blows. It had helped, but it was not enough. He was still bloodied and bruised. She knew the wounds would heal, but the sight of them broke her heart. Nevertheless, it had dampened the euphoric mood she had hoped for. Still, they were alive, they were together, and they were free. Viola debated where to go when they arrived in New York. She had been afraid to contact anyone in case they called back or she was overheard. The fewer people who knew, the better. That's what she had cautioned Julian. He had commented that it was easy not to tell anyone as he had no friends. In fact, he doubted anyone would notice. Between graduation and the situation with Riley Marie and Redfield, he told her, there was no one not to tell. Now for Viola, the question remained, where to go when they arrived in New York? Her mother's? Her sister's? Or to Kimberly? Whose wrath did she want to encounter first? That was the question. As things had become worse with her husband, she had gone underground, stopped contacting people. At first, it had been her pride, but then it became too painful to admit, even to herself, how bad things had become. She often thought she wouldn't know what to say if anyone asked how she was. Fine, that was ridiculous. But to tell anyone, well, let's see. Since we last spoke... My husband turned out to be a monster. I'm trapped, and I hate the South. That seemed even worse. So she stopped talking, and people stopped calling. Even her family stopped, but she knew that they knew. Months became years, and the screaming, beatings, and general disintegration of her life became a blur. It was only when she began to plan her escape that she noticed time again. When she first arrived in Mississippi, she'd taken an office job. At first, she thought it would be while she settled in, and then she'd get back to psychology, this time to practice and not just use it as a cover. But time moved quickly in some ways. She was at the first job five years when the beating started. She lost more of herself with each successive blow from her husband. She quit the office job and started cashiering at the only late-night grocery store in the area. The 25-minute drive to and from Missy's Foodland gave her a chance to think and cry. No one cared what she looked like or questioned bruises or badly disguised black eyes at 1 a.m. She stopped caring about her hair giving up on styling and relaxers. The bitchy women in the local salon, who thought her husband a catch and Viola an uppity northerner, made it easier not to care. 
She cut her hair close, cropped to her skull, but that angered her husband, so she grew it, kept it braided, and wore a wig. The wig made it easier to detach. When she looked in the mirror, she was unrecognizable, even to herself. With each mile, Viola felt her old self returning. She wondered how it ever had come to this, but she knew, at least in part, that her pride had been her undoing. Quite simply, she couldn't believe that she'd made such a huge mistake that she could have chosen so poorly. A smart West Indian woman from New York married a backward man from rural Mississippi for love and thought it could work. She could still hear her mother and Kimberly ganging up on her as she packed. You're too good for him. You won't fit in down there. You'll be saddled with children, barefoot and pregnant. He'll try and make you forget who you are, where you came from. At the time, she thought they were jealous of her luck in love. Now she wondered if they were psychic. They were right on everything except the pregnant part. She never gave up the pill. She was afraid, too, of what her mother would say about what she had become, a black American. She was West Indian, and her mother had instilled a great pride in her. She was not brought here on a slave ship. Her family had come on their own volition. They had chosen America. She had reminded her mother that the West Indies had been colonized and enslaved too, but her mother never cared. She took great pride in their heritage. In her husband's part of Mississippi, a town with a population so small it would fit into a neighborhood in Brooklyn, she found people of her own skin color apologizing for being alive. Slavery might be long gone, but its wounds were still raw. In the part of the South where she lived, the blacks didn't understand her, and the few whites belittled her. In New York, blacks seemed to have shed this inbred shame, coming alive to the possibilities of life. That's what she wanted for Julian, pride in himself without race attached to it. Once, she tried to explain this to Kimberly, about race, ethnicity, and nuances of skin color within the black world. To a certain extent, she'd had to learn it herself. Her family had immigrated from the West Indies when she was seven, and the ways of black America had been a mystery to her. People seemed to hate white people and yet want what they had. White America seemed scared of black people and yet imitated everything. It fascinated her, and in college, she minored in sociology trying to find answers. After her father's death, when she was 10, Viola's mother, Miss Jean, had continuously threatened to move back to the West Indies. But she liked her lifestyle, and Viola knew she'd never leave, despite her disdain for America and Americans in general. In Miss Jean's household, you were judged on your education and your intelligence, along with your experiences. All of this had been lost on Kimberly, who'd grown up, if not emotionally at least, financially privileged. 
a lifelong East Coaster with constant exposure to all of the culture and cultures of New York. Ultimately, Kimberly was more classist than racist. Kimberly, to the naked eye, they seemed like unlikely friends, but they had connected instantly from their first meeting at freshman orientation at Columbia. A case of opposites attracting, they had been best friends ever since. Her mind kept returning to their last conversation, and she hoped that their bond had not been destroyed by her folly. At the time, Kimberly had insisted that she take her half of the business and wrote her a check. You keep it. I don't want to bring that type of energy into my marriage. Viola had spoken out of the bravado of what she believed to be true love. She ripped up the check, disdaining how she had earned it. Her mother told her she was crazy, and Kimberly had looked so hurt. She needed that money now to live on. She only prayed that when she ripped up the check, she had not torn the friendship forever. If Kimberly didn't forgive her, she didn't know what she'd do. And with that, Viola decided on her mother. Wasn't a mother's love unconditional? It was her safest bet. Next time on Ovid's Flea. He woke again a few hours later. 9 a.m. Where the hell was Viola? Shut up! What do you know about the society of decent people? That's what I hate about my face. I look fake. Done. Worked on. Ovid's Flea is voiced by Patrick Brewis, Anita Charlesier, Dan Johnson, Pat Jones, Harry Wetzel, Reed Winfrey, and C.N. Yates. This executive produced by Pavan Muzumdar with Jonathan Moises, C.N. Yates, and Pat Jones in conjunction with Arden Park Productions, LLC. The sound engineer is Nicholas Sapunos, and the sound was designed by Nicholas Sapunos and Pat Jones. Ovid's Flea was made possible by the generosity of independent sponsors, as well as those through Kickstarter. The music is licensed through Grey Bliss Music or is a property of Arden Park Productions. Special thanks goes to Monica, Andrew, and Sophia Moore, Polish Scouting Studios and Anya Brozda, and Rick Gomes. To find out more about the world of Ovid's Flea, go to ovidsflea.com.